Welcome to a very special episode of 115 Mast, where we are joined today by Ben Lindsay from Power to Fight. With the recent news that came out around the Stephen Lawrence case, we dive into a deep conversation around race and culture and everything in between. I hope you're sitting comfortably because this is about to get uncomfortable. <laughs> This is 115 Miles with Josh Connolly and Hassan Kaya. We hope you're sitting comfortably because this is about to get uncomfortable. Brilliant. So welcome, lads, to uh, this episode of 115 Miles. Today we've got a very special guest in Mr. Pudden. I thought you were talking about me. No, no, you're not remotely special, and nor are you a guest. Actually, it's not a guest, it's a co-host for the episode today. Welcome, Ben Lindsay. Hello. How are you doing? I'm going to let you introduce yourself, rather than me do you a disservice. I reckon you could probably do a good job, though. But, um, all right, cool. My name is Ben Lindsay. I'm CEO and founder of a charity called Power to Fight. Uh, I'm an author. I'm a PhD candidate. I'm a parent. I'm a Chelsea supporter. What, oh. what more? What more is then said? <laughs> South East London, right? Yes. What, yeah, and the hardest DJ as well. Oh yeah, extraordinaire. A little bit of DJ. Yeah, a little bit. Oh, that's right. Because I'm an MC, so I, maybe oh, we'll finish. We'll finish. With... <laughs> we had a good chat about a bit of we music did. last yeah, time that did. we met. Um, yeah, and obviously the hardest out of all of the PhD and being an author and stuff is being a Chelsea fan. <laughs> um, this season, definitely. This season. <laughs> Nightmare. Um, but it's good to be humbled, right? After yeah. the years of success, to yeah, yeah. humility and stuff. It's, it's good. Yeah, I think you'll stay up as well this year. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> please, please. Uh, yeah, look, I'm looking forward to this episode. And like like always, like we always say, uh, with the way that we do this, you're gonna be a co-host. So it's gonna be the same episode as we always get. Um, but we'll be exploring it alongside Ben today. So we're gonna start properly with the check-in today. And I've given you pre-warning, Hass, that I'm gonna come to you. So yeah. let me start with you, mate, for a bit of a check-in. Yeah, I feel fine, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I, um, we were just talking about this earlier. I think I am going through a period of growth in my life in a way, personal growth that is, you know, in a way that I haven't done for a long time. And um, I think I'm really, you know, I've talked a little bit about it on the podcast. I'm really um, exploring some stuff around my past, my childhood that I think has informed who I am, but, um, and how I show up in the world. Um, but over the last few weeks, I felt like some of the growth that I've had in this first six months of the year stumbled a bit. I felt like I'm sort of, uh, I sort of lost a bit of momentum and was trying to figure out what that was. And how that, that was showing up was uh, working late and, um, scrolling on Instagram or sc scrolling on TikTok and just kind of trying to zone out. And, I'm, and, and I thought it was just like, oh, I'm tired and I just want to kind of numb out and just watch something. But actually what I think I, I sort of discovered in the last few days is, is actually in doing that, rather than it just kind of giving me a dopamine hit, I realized what I'm doing is I'm sort of been avoiding stuff. It's just easy to like avoid stuff that you don't want to confront by just 
looking at, you know, TikTok or watching something on Netflix. And so I was listening to a podcast, I was driving to my mum's listening to a podcast and it's like, I always talk about driving being those, that moment where I'm just by myself, I'm driving to my mum. So there's almost a little, I think an emotional kind of connection that I'm making to my past anyway and just that I'm going to see my mum. And it's in that moment where I feel like I'm most open to, to, to listening. And so, you know, this weekend I really just started to understand that um, uh, I've been sort of avoiding stuff and I'm not very good at uh, like c confronting that. Like you both know me very well that I'm always like focusing on solutions and, and no, none more so than me. I don't go down to like the, the, the layers, the depth that I need to. And I think I've just really understood that about myself and so I'm starting the journey. So long way of saying I'm on a journey, but I'm enjoying the journey. Yeah. I think that numbing out as well. The The reason I think it's so good in a car for a lot of people is because in today's world, it's one of the only times when you're forced to not numb out with your phone, right? Yeah. And so you're just in your sound, particularly if you're on your own. Normally, you get your phone out and you numb out. And I that's one of the missing pieces in the way that I think people talk about this stuff is... We always just go, oh, people numb out on social media, devices, and then everybody goes, the devices are the problem. If you didn't have the device, everything would be all right. But it's actually looking at what am I trying to numb out from? You know what I mean? And you know, the one thing I say is that my kids don't reach for their devices when I'm present and interacting with them. Yeah. So the problem isn't the device. The yeah. problem is nearly always me on my fucking device or me doing something that's not being present with them. So they're finding another way. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. we always, we tend to focus because it's easier to focus and go, ah, oh, if they didn't have the iPad or if they didn't have the phone, you know, we wouldn't have all of this. And it's like, well, maybe they'd be doing something else. Do you know what I mean? Because the big problem is us on our, on our devices. Yeah. And the thing that um, I heard on this podcast, and I, f I forget who the guest was, but it, it, one of the things I think we as society really struggle with is sitting in silence and just, and, and just not doing something. So, even if you think you're walking on the street, not having something in your in your ears and listening to music, just like just walking, I find that really alien. Like I, I almost need some sort of stimulation. And that's what we're doing. We're just trying to constantly stimulate ourselves away from whatever that needs to be done or seen or just being like with silence and just your own thoughts and not doing anything and no distraction. It's hard. We are so conditioned now to always be stimulated or have something to do that we can't rightly figure out how to just be doing nothing. Yeah, and I think we were forced a lot more back in like before devices, before handheld devices, there were lots of times during the day where you were forced to be in your head, yeah? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, waiting for a bus or like waiting for a train on the toilet and stuff like that, yeah? That's all been replaced now by, you don't have to be in your head if you don't want to, innit? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And we all have anxiety, like anxiety about being with a device and no battery on it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like the thought of doing something like that. But it's also about training yourself, right? Because I've got a mate of mine who got ordained over the weekend, right? And yeah, so he's now reverend, which is hilarious. It's, it's an amazing story he's had. But three days before he got ordained, he had to do a three day silent retreat. And he said it was crazy. Like the fact you couldn't say anything, you know, even over dinner, you just had to kind of just nod and, and smile. But he said that what he learned about himself um, 
and what he learned about others and in a very spiritual way, what he felt God was speaking to him about. I was like, where would we ever get the chances to have a three-day silent retreat? And I was thinking, I'd like to do it. I'm also very scared. And I mm. probably, probably last about three hours or something yeah. like that, about three days. But you ha- I think you have to train yourself to actually be very comfortable with yourself. Yeah. As an only child, I'm actually all right with that. Um, that's why I get so confused when I see my three children. I'm like, why are you arguing? What's going on? But actually, I think training yourself to be in that space what you're talking about yeah. is so important. Yeah. I don't think it comes naturally. No. At all. No. Yeah. And you have to fabricate it in today's world, yeah. don't you? You have to force it if you want it to come. Good. Let's come to you then, Ben. <laughs> How are you, mate? I'm not allowed to say I'm all right. I, I'm okay, right? I've got to get deeper. Yeah. Um, personally, yeah, I'm, I'm good because it's my daughter's birthday. Happy birthday. And yeah, it always makes me smile. She's, she's, she's one of the most liveliest creative people I, 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 I know. I almost said I've made, that's weird. I know, <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Finally made three. Um, so I'm happy, she's happy. Um, so that's, that's good. And from like a charity perspective, we've had, a, we had an incredible fundraiser recently uh, with which you were at. And Loved that's it. good fun. We had like Heartless Crew and Master Steps. And it was just good. So that was like energy. Um, and I suppose I am still working out how to be a CEO and be a founder of an organization and have 17 members of staff that I am responsible for. Like it's one thing when it was just me back in the day, and it was just like me and one other, and it's like, well, if I mess up, it's on me. Now you've got kind of like seventeen members of staff to deal with, so sometimes that pressure can be a lot. And I think I've probably felt that a, a little more this year, cost of living and all that type of stuff. So there's a there's a personal thing there. I think from a community perspective, the last twenty four hours has been mad. Um, so on one level there's all this stuff which came out around Stephen Lawrence's murder and um, another suspect, six suspects. Originally they said there were five, but we always kind of knew there was a six person has been named. And that's massive. Like there was this person who's been named who the police always knew about, um, which vindicated a lot of people who always said that, particularly Stephen's mate, Dwayne Brooks and stuff. And there was a documentary on last night and yeah, I think from a community perspective, just to give it a context, um, I grew up in the same area where St- Stephen was murdered, went to school just a mile away from where he he died. So every time Stephen's name comes up for a lot of us um, in that community who knew or knew of Stephen really well, it was a lot. So that was crazy. And then yesterday, um, there was a young person who lost his life, which was about five minutes away from our office. And um, I happened to be right. First of all, I was running in the morning. I saw it all cordoned off. So I went and spoke to the police officer. And at that moment, that young person was still alive. And then by the end of the day, I arrived, I rode back home and he had passed. And I just happened to um, catch one of the family members there. And it was just horrible, man. Just like the grief and the, <sighs> the wailing, which unfortunately I've seen a lot over 20 years. Mm. But when you just, you never get kind of desensitized to this. Well, I don't, you don't get desensitized to this stuff. So it was quite full on. So if I'm honest, I walk into my house, we speak about this, mm. how you walk into your home mm. after work. So it's kind of like, okay, this has been heavy, but 
I've got my family, and the first thing I walk through the door, my children are going to be like, yeah, oh, daddy, da, 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 da. And I can't be just like, leave me alone. I just need to like, so I'm preparing myself to walk in to my house, even though I've been around death. Like literally I'm seeing like the forensics teams and all this type of stuff. So, but it's a reminder of the work I do. So in answer to your question, I am good, but I'm just aware of the madnesses, the evil, the death, the murder, the the madness which just impacts our communities and that never leaves me really. Let, let me ask you a question. If, so, so you said be real, so I'm like- No, no, yeah, no, 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 this no, is no, good, no, man. so good. You know, for most people, Ben, I'm gonna make a generalization, but most people, they might have a hard day at work. Mm. And, for, and that's a, that can be a real degree. Some people have very difficult lives. But what you do and what the charity does is immersed in such heavy work, emotionally heavy. You have to hold space for families who are affected by uh, violence. Um, you have to uh, work hard to shift policy at a macro level, and that and that's like wading through mud, right? <laughs> um, but and you're often the, the kind of the, the epicenter of a lot of emotional grief and turmoil and challenge. Um, how do how do you how do you kind of do that? How do you kind of kind of hold all of that and then go home and be a dad and be a husband and like yeah. you know most people just have to kind of go. Oh, I had a tough day with my boss or whatever and like you've got all this other yeah. incredible yeah heaviness. I mean that's, it's a really good question and I and I, I think we mentioned earlier on about how you train yourself and I remember writing in my, my book which I wrote in what came out in 2019 that there's a moment where you have to almost um, leave the heavy coat of pain and, and stress um, outside the door. Now, let me just unpack that a little bit. The coat, you're meant to wear the coat. So the coat I'm meant to be wearing is around engaging with young people and families around violence affecting young people, uh, being an advocate for racial justice, um, fighting against injustice at multiple levels. That's the coat which has been given. But I have to choose every day whether or not I, I wear that coat into my house. And actually, uh, the, the the picture I always have is like, no, there's there's a, a metaphorical coat hanger outside, which I leave that coat there. And when I walk into my house, um, whatever issues which are going on, it's not like sometimes I don't intersect, but I'm like, no, I'm there for my wife, I'm there for my, my children, and let's deal with what's going on there. When I go back to work, I put that coat back on, because that's what I'm meant to be doing, and it's cool. I have to have that separation. Now, every now and again, as I said, the, the conversations intersect. But I know, and you said it earlier on, Josh, the pr being present, and I'm not saying I'm brilliant at it, but I, we try to be present in the moment for our children. And because it's such a heavy and, and serious work we do, I have to work hard <laughs> on bringing joy. Hence the reason when we did an event uh, last week, um, which was a fundraiser, but it was really just a pie. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, yeah. fundraiser, but I was just like, I just want to get heartless crew down and I basically just want to have fun. Um, you could see the release in the room from our, mm. from our team and other people in the sector because it is heavy. So you've got to create those spaces. So 
Yeah, no, it's it's nuts. Um, but I'm 20 years deep in it, which means there's a level of experience and clinical supervision I have and therapeutic support I get and us trying to build trauma-informed work and organisations, which means that we're probably best prepared for this type of stuff. But it still breaks my heart when I walk past, I mean, yet literally I walk past a murder scene and I'm seeing the sister of the kid crying her eyes out and I'm like, this is real stuff. Like, I don't know what people think this is. They see headlines. I'm like, no, 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 this, this, is, this is the real stuff, you know? And as an organization, we will hopefully be able to help and support that family like we've done for the last four or five years, but it's real, man. It's, it's, it's not it's not a joke at all. It proper brings it proper brings it home for me as somebody who don't like because I grew up outside of London, yeah. So I grew up in Swindon, and even now when I see stuff about knife crime, there's a huge separation, right? I I only ever see it in the news in a political context, so I don't see it in a human context, no. not remotely, um, and then. The way that I saw it growing up, I was massively, like we were joking, we did a podcast recently, we were in Bow, right? Mm. And because I grew up in Swindon, I'm still a bit of a tourist when I'm in London, right? Because it was in Bow, I just know about Wiley singing about Bow E3 and his mm. tunes, yeah? So I was like getting off the train in Bow like a few weeks ago, right? And I'm like, just thinking about what Wiley says in his tracks when I come out of the tube station, yeah? The reason I'm saying that is because it's still, it's almost like, I view it a little bit like it's um, not real, I guess. Like it's a movie. Yeah. Because I hear, when I was younger, yeah, when I was in my teens, I heard it all being spoken about by like all my fave grime entities, mm. yeah. But it's not to like, genuinely, and I know a lot about it now through like being interested in it. And I'm obviously like, try to advocate and try to be as knowledgeable as I can about these things, yeah. But when I hear you like say, I walked past it yesterday and I go, and we deal with it every day, that it fucking hits it home for me that it's human because I'm still quite detached from it. And I don't realize that until I hear you speak. But I think you're, you represent the majority of, yeah. of the UK. Yeah. <clears throat> Most people only see the headlines, right? Most people have a stereotype of who they believe gets caught up in this type of stuff. Mm. Most people will think it's a black issue. And I always, you've heard me say this a million times, it disproportionately impacts black and brown communities in a London context. Yeah. But a lot of that is to do with demographic and the density of where ethnic minorities are. So in, if you're talking about a borough like Newham, when you've got 60, 70% of ethnic minorities, by nature of that, the crime levels are gonna be higher. But people don't wanna think about this type of level. And then there's a conversation about, actually, if you go UK-wide, Cleveland, which I didn't even know, I didn't even know we had a Cleveland in, in the UK until recently, has got the highest knife crime in the country and that's 98% white people living there. Second is the West is West Midlands and that's got a huge Asian population, right? So there's things which the general public don't understand about this issue. And the other thing which people don't really get is the, the knock-on effect and the, the collective trauma of the communities and how it doesn't just begin and end with a young person losing their life, unfortunately. You, you, you're then talking about court cases and you're talking about uh, the legal troubles and the therapeutic issues and the, and the mental health issues and how 
the indirect impact on young people who are not even involved in it, but, oh, because like we were saying about mobile phones and the speed of things now, you can see a murder which is caught on Snapchat and let's say there was 10 witnesses to that, within minutes or seconds, a thousand kids have seen it. So that's now a thousand kids who, whether they know it or not, are being traumatized by the violence that they've just seen on their phone. Mm. So there's a lot of things that we are now dealing with, which we weren't dealing with 20 years ago. Violence has always been violence, right? It's not a young person's thing. It's not a black thing. We know that violence has always been violence, but the speed of how that information gets uh, transferred to people is what's changing. That's what we can't keep up with. And I think your point really is that actually most people don't want to go beyond the headlines. Hence the reason that Power to Fight, we are very much around, okay, we have to look at this from multiple levels. Uh, what we call on the ground, like what's the pastoral and the therapeutic support we can offer, but also the challenging to uh, policymakers and local authorities and central government and legislation. And this is why on ties at tw on Twitter, I will go hard on these people because like you're talking from a headlines perspective. You're not going beyond the headlines. You're not engaging with the young people. You're not engaging with the families. There's families we have been working with for the last six years who are still grieving, are still suffering, and there's still implications. I said this to somebody recently, I can pinpoint a murder which happened in Lewisham Borough in 2005, which would have influenced a murder which happened recently in Lewisham. Mm. Nobody has that space to kind of be like, okay, how do you map this type of stuff? And, and it's just, it's sad, but we're here. And the hope is, and the joy is that an organisation like mine and many others are doing some fantastic work and that's what might keeps me going. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, uh, what I will encourage all of our listeners to go and do is go and check out Power to Fight, mm. what Ben's doing and the team's doing. It's, it's nothing short of incredible. And you're going to be humble because that's what you have to be. But <laughs> I've had the privilege with, you know, with me and the team to partner Power to Fight for the last few years. And what they're doing is it's unique. It's uh, it's incredible. Um, and it's so needed for our society. And what, uh, what I'll say one more thing is there's sort of, you know, um, you know, you know, what, what Josh was talking about is indicative of um, kind of general populace, right? However, it's worse than that because actually we're very curious people, mm. right? It's the ones that are, which are the general populace that aren't curious, that just are led by the media narrative. And unfortunately, they're the ones that have the voting weight. And then they get to keep the ones that keep the media in power, which means it continues to reinforce the lack of investment and the otherism and all that sort of stuff. So it's platforms like this, it's the work that you do, Ben, that, you know, that's really important that we kind of keep this conversation in the consciousness to say, no, it's not a black problem. Mm. It's not just uh, an inner London problem. This is something that we all need to be aware of and we all need to be looking at. Yeah, and I think what, like when you talk about the traumas and then linking things back to like 2005 and stuff like that, the way that I think those in power and like it gets politicized and then you see the people that, which is most people by the way, and like you say, most people, yeah. I'm 
curious, yeah, and desperately trying to learn about this. And still, until I until something gets humanized in the way that you just humanized it to me, I still I'm still detached from it, even though I'm trying not to be, yeah. And I think that's why that common like people that are normally led by the media and the way that the media control the narrative, knife crime is normally always fed as being like knife crimes on the rise we need to clamp down yeah and so you people never go beyond the surface and look at like you know the impact that parental incarceration has on children and how that perpetuates the problem and stuff like that but the human for me as somebody who is quite detached from it that human element is the big bit that's missing for me yeah because it like as another example and i use this example a lot when i'm talking about this stuff I had, me and Hass sit and do an hour, 90 minute conversations around this stuff and around race, right? And what happens is, is I talk about it and I logically understand. So Hass might say to me, I'll feel a bit different if I'm in a place where I'm the only brown person, right? And logically I go, yeah, I can understand how that is. Like that, that makes sense, right? But that's all I get, yeah? And I understand it rationally and I understand it logically, but it doesn't impact my heart in the way when I said, you should come to an England game with me. We should, and you go, oh, I've never been to an England game. And I'm like, what? you never been to an England? Come to an England game, mate. You'll love it. And you're like, well, I've just, you know, it's always sort of been a place where somebody like me doesn't necessarily feel 100% comfortable. And it's that moment when I go, fuck, my mate, who like, I wouldn't even bat an, like, you know, and I think, I know you've told me that you feel different and all of that. But it's then that reaches my heart and I go, shit, man. But here's the thing though, and I, and I get that, and I think that is, most people when they have the interpersonal connection but where i i i i, I struggle with that not necessarily what you're saying but a, a generalized version of what you're saying is why does it have to get to that point mm. why does it have to get to the point of i need to break your heart or i have to have a personal relationship with somebody for you to fully understand that young people <laughs> are being killed and so I, I sometimes we've, you know, we've overspoken about how we um, change the narrative to make it more. As a somebody leads a charity, you're like, well, if we want people to understand what we're dealing with, what's the marketing strategy, uh, what type of narrative are we putting out there? And I've overthought this, but I, I get, always come back to this point. It's like, so hold on, young people losing their lives before their time. That's not enough alone before I tell you anything, before I give you their history, before I give them their context, mm. before I give you their their school record, before I let you know what their family status is like, before I give you anything, the bare fact that a young person, again and again, are losing their life to knife crime isn't enough for you to think, I need to do something, I need to help move the dial. I think there's something very problematic. And I'll tell you what it comes down to, it's because the faces like people just don't care. People, I, I've come to that conclusion, people just don't care. Because I'll tell you what, if this was um, 25 kids in Eton losing, losing their life to knife crime, the National Army would be out. Mm. And just to be very clear, whether you're white or black or middle class or working class, I don't want to see young people dying full stop. But I think there is something where, because this is being seen as a black issue, a working class issue, mm. Nobody really cares about it. And that's the bit what breaks my heart. I'm like, no, no, these are these are young people who had their whole future ahead of them. 
And so much of this is about circumstances. You can't take 1.4 billion off local authorities since 2011 and youth services and youth workers is decimated and don't feel that there's, this is the result. These are the consequences. Yeah. And nobody wants to talk about the external stuff. Well, what about the parents? They just need more role models. You know, what? Uh, right, we're not saying that that maybe doesn't play a part, but actually the responsibility of the state has, be, has been to actually provide mm. free school meals and all this stuff, and, and it's been ripped away. Yeah. All these things, and, and the, what I was finally saying on this is that the other problem that we have in society is that we can't, we don't seem to be able to handle what I would call contradicting and multiple narratives. Mm. Yeah. You can say something which is 100% true, and I can say something which is 100% true. Yeah. And we have to find a way of how do those contradicting them different narratives actually sit together, as opposed to, no, there has to be one narrative. You saw that with Black Lives Matter. Or, what do you mean Black Lives Matter? All Lives Matter. Yes and yes. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's it. <laughs> but the context becomes important there, right? The context becomes important. That, like, when you say both are true, the reason Black Lives Matter is yeah. important because, because in the context of what is being yeah, said, yeah, people don't really get matters. to the context. People yeah. just say, people just say all lives matter, and I'm like, but you're missing the point. You're missing why at a specific time mm. focuses on black lives. Okay, but people, I, I don't want to say that people are dumb because I don't think that's fair, but I think people want simplistic answers to complex problems. And therefore it's like, oh, hold on, I can't get my head into thinking that Black Lives Matter in the context of what we were seeing with George Floyd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the same time, they're like, but isn't life yeah. all about equality yeah. as opposed to yeah. equity? Yeah. Do you think a lot of it's to do with avoiding looking at the difficult parts of themselves? So, so it's easier for somebody to go all lives matter because then they don't have to go through the route because to look at it in the other context is to make myself culpable and I have to go through that path then. You, well, go on. Uh, well, I, I would also say to add to that is um, we're also assuming that people have their own agency. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> like you're manipulated to like you're manipulated to either go, are you Republican, Democrat? Are you Labour or Tory? Are you white or black? Like there is, we are, we are pushed into, it's almost like a, a flow chart where you go, it's binary, yes or no, right? And you get pushed into that. And then you just go into, we've talked about it so much on this podcast, right? Where you're almost, in, you're almost discouraged from doing that internal dialogue, that internal reflection, that internal thinking. And I think, um, so it is partly that people aren't uh, uh, are afraid to explore it, but it's also because it's just easier to go. Oh, I, I identify with that group there, and therefore you get pulled into that. But that's that the hard thing, right? Because if you take, I don't know, some people would claim they're maybe left of center in their politics. Well, where, what party is that then? Like nobody wants to admit that you may well have elements of all the parties in you. Mm. Nobody wants nobody wants to acknowledge that actually I might have some conservative values, possibly, and but I also have some left wing tendencies, you know, and I wouldn't call myself a capitalist, 
But I also understand that money makes the world go round. Yeah. So sounds like New Labour, nineteen ninety seven. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, there's, yeah, there's a, that's a whole other story yeah. on how that it all ended up. But there's a lot of stuff there. Which where is the spaces where you can actually have those contradicting and multiple narrative conversations, right? Yeah. And I, and I, and Twitter is definitely not the place to do that because no. you can't do it in the in the characters, but. When it comes back to youth violence, or I don't even like saying youth violence, violence affecting young people, there's so many different narratives going on. There's a fine line between perpetrator and victim. You know, I don't even think it's fair to, to, to break it up like that often. But the media wants to put it that way. Because so many victims become perpetrators. Yeah. You know, so much, we don't want to talk about fit. Why did the young person pick up the knife in the first place? Now, I know you just want to see, you just want to talk about the consequences. But what about if we go a few steps back? What was the person's situation? You don't know if that person was attacked. You don't know if that person now, whether it's we think it's silly or not, they're carrying a knife for protection. Sometimes I talk to young people, and I, you know, I don't do this as much now because you've got teams to do this, right? But back in the day when I used to do it, and I used to be like, you oh, know, guys, you don't need to pick up the knife. And be like, well, be, and they'll be like, big man, it's all right for you to say that. Mm-hmm. It's okay for you to say that because you can get in your car and go from A to Z. Mm-hmm. I've got to walk through the ends, right? Yeah. And if I see someone who looks like me and I don't know them, I'm assuming they're carrying something. So it's do or die. Now, I can come out with multiple things to say why I think that is a bad idea for them to be picking up a knife. But ultimately, I do not live their life. So you have to then work out, well, what can you connect with them? You do start talking about fear and, and trauma and consequences, but so much of it is like, I'm, it's immediate gratification. I'm not thinking about five years, 10 years down the line. I'm thinking about the next week before something could go down. It's so similar to the way in which I talk about addiction, by the way, which right, is like, okay. when, I, when I talk about uh, somebody that may start using heroin at the age of like 13 or 14, I always say, if you were to hear and experience their story in its entirety, yeah. picking up heroin made perfect sense when they did it, yeah? Or, or, or any drug. So I understand, like, I fully understand the context of that. I, wa- I do want to come back to something because when you said earlier, and I agree with you, that it's almost like most people just don't care. Why is it not enough when we say a young life has been lost, right? And you say it's like people don't care. And the reality is, we're not doing enough about it, so there isn't enough care about it, right? Mm. What do you, explicitly if you can, (laughs) what do you think that is? Why do you think that is? I think a lot of it is to do with racism. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Mm. It, it's, it can't be about, you know, some people use the excuse, well, I'm not near it. I don't understand it. Mm. But that wasn't the case when we talk about Ukraine. So I am definitely all for the level of support which was given to Ukraine in that context. But it's nowhere near me. And yet, the world rightfully gave the support which was needed, okay? But there's stuff which is going on closer to home, or even if we keep the Ukraine uh, conversation going, there's other war-affected uh, inf- countries 
which did not get, who still do not get the level of support. Just so happens they they look brown and black. Yeah, I mean, we even start wars with those people. Right. It's yeah. A, yeah. So, so yeah. my thing is like, we just got to call it what it is. So much of this stuff sometimes, the the picture and the narrative, and I'll give, and we use this in our workshops. We've seen how the media will portray black and brown children when they have lost their lives. They tend to have, they find the most ghetto gutter pictures, bandana. We found uh, one picture we found with them with a weapon. When it comes to the white children who have lost their lives, we've seen them in suits. We've seen them in uh, browning outfits. You know, it's mm. like, it's like, oh, oh no, that's the human. This is the human side, but we're gonna dehumanize this. And it's the right wing press. And we see it again and again and again. This is why I won't go. I get asked to go on these TV, GMB, all these types of programs all the time. I refuse to go on it because your narrative isn't true. You want to paint a picture which is to present to Middle England that this is a black issue, this is a working class issue, even though I've been in situations where I've buried white children. It's, it's that kind of real for me. So um, why do people don't care? I think there is a, there is a perception that the people who have been impacted by this don't deserve our love. Yeah. Because I'll, I'll tell you this, the, the thing what I've realized, I've said this to Hass before, right? I ran a half marathon for Powder Fight in um, October. I did the half, I did the Royal Parks, which is amazing. Lovely, it was a lovely day. <laughs> but I realized, um, depending on what I tell the story to, I was either running past a lot of people or they were running past me and the, Charities which we saw again and again was dog charities or cancer charities. The amount of dog charities I saw. So, you know, you get to about 16K and your mind starts going all over the place. And I'm like, wow, oh, this whole thing around violence affecting young people, this is a hard cause. Because you look at a little doggy, you know, oh, it's cute. Mm. You give money. And no one ever thinks of a cancer victim as, oh, it's your fault. Rarely, particularly when yeah. it comes to children, right? No one's yeah, like, yeah. that's your fault. When it comes to violence affecting young people and you see a headline of a kid's being stabbed, I guarantee the majority of people will be like, well, what did he or she do? Yeah. What What are they connected to? What are they connected to? Yeah. Your automatic empathy is not what most people go to straight away. Mm. Which, and then you have to, like, going back to your point, well, why is that then? They're children. They're victims. Why can't we just be like, well, that was unfortunate. No, no, no. There's a narrative which has been built is that, no, no, these kids. And it came, it started with um, when we had the, the riots and the troubled families and Cameron and all that type of stuff. And the, the, the hardcore punishments that we got, we didn't look at it as a poverty issue. We just like, oh, these kids are just going around running riot. Half the stuff people were stealing <laughs> were like nappies and bottles of water and, and stuff like that. That should tell you the problem. Mm. So I mean, for me, we have this battle all the time. It's like, well, how do we, and for us, what we then do is like, well, okay, if we're not getting the empathy here, we're gonna look at this from an emotional health and a mental health conversation, because that levels the playing field. Mm. When you say to a parent, actually this starts when a young person is depressed. Oh my goodness. Yeah, no, my, my, I can see my young person actually dealing with their mental and emotional health. Mm. And then we're like, okay, and that can lead to fear and that can lead to anxiety and that in some cases will lead to a young person pick up a knife. You start breaking it down like that, we have seen families and middle-class white people suddenly be like, ah, uh, it isn't just about 
my kid can never be involved in that. Mm. Well, who's your kid sitting next to in class? Mm. You, you just have to kind of break yeah. it down like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's something, you know, it's it's something that pops into my head is around relatability. And that's the that's the one of the key issues around it. it. It made me think, when you were talking, it made me think about a few years back, I got into a fight on Facebook. It's one of the reasons I came off of Facebook, right? <laughs> but basically... The, the, in one week, there was a, a really um, significant earthquake in Pakistan where, like, so many lives were lost, mm -hmm. families, and, you know, this was, a, this was a natural disaster. And I would say it was a fairly mooted kind of thing on Facebook. At the time, there was a lot of uh, grand gestures whenever something sort of big would happen. And so, and I was curious, because I'm an observer, so I was like, oh, I didn't see a lot. The next week, there was a fire at Notre Dame, cathedral and the outpouring of grief that came for that was incredible yeah. and so i got obviously fucking pissed off and started calling people out and the amount of defense that came back like that clearly people were feeling um like uh affronted because i triggered something i pointed a mirror at them mm. and so i got into a few debates i wasn't really pointing uh at specific people um, that were on my feed, I was just pointing at the fact that we can find more grief for a burning building than for people losing their lives. And and it was I what I summed up from that was it was about relatability. They could relate to it because they used to go to France and they would you know go and on holiday and the people around them that you know looked like them, and so it felt like something that they could relate to. Whereas at Pakistan. And an earthquake was not something that they could relate but to. I think you're being too kind. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. Oh, by the way, I'm not saying that that is, that I'm no. saying that is d d intrinsically connected to race. I'm not. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's my point. Yeah. It's kind of like yeah. the, the real life conversations yeah. we have to appreciate is that I believe there are some things in this world which are always going to get more support because the narrative fits um, what we are seeing, particularly with white middle class people. And Ukraine was that, uh, yeah. that, that thing. I've, I've heard big people with big authority. Well, Ben, you know, it's it's closer to home, right? And, you know, they're, 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 they're like us. Big politicians, you know, and I'm like, right. So Saddam, <laughs> what's, what's, what's the deal? And, and therefore we just have to uh, acknowledge you don't care. Mm. And while it's painful to hear, it's better that I know that because then I know how to operate. Mm. It's like I'm not gonna try. Once upon a time, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna change the world. When I wrote my book, I was like, I'm gonna change the world. I'm gonna change everyone's hearts, right? And then I'm like, I've poured myself and my experiences and around race in this. And yeah, some people are getting it, but the sea change I stupidly expected didn't come. Mm. Why? Because ultimately people are creatures of habit. It's it's difficult. It's like what I always say to um, my team and I talk about like my parents and stuff. I've got to a point where my parents are now 75 and they're not going to change. Yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> I just have to accept at this point, <laughs> 75 years old, the annoying things that you do as parents you're not gonna change. It's, stuck with it. I'm stuck with it. And that's, again, it's better that I know what I'm dealing with. 
as as their son, right? And I think I've just got to the point now. It's like I know where where this is. It doesn't mean that people can't change. It doesn't mean that I've not seen people change, but I start with a position of, um, you know, your heart might not change. So we've just got to try something else, okay? And mm. maybe 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 that's just and and you I don't know. you're up against the task, right? Because as I sit here and obviously I'm a white man listening to what's being said, even when you brought up the example that you did, yeah? Something happened in Pakistan or something you said. I noticed the first voice in my head, despite even what you've said, and you've called it out two or three times before he said it, the first voice in my head goes, yeah, that is far away, yeah? And I wreck, it's only because I'm actively challenging myself and it's very uncomfortable to do it, yeah? That I go, oh, it's not fucking, it's not that. It's not that, it's the race thing, it's the race thing. Otherwise, it's much more comfortable and easy. And I guess when when you talk about privilege, this is what you're talking about, for me to go normally in any other scenario, yeah, but that's because it's fucking miles away. And then I would get a queue of people that look like me who agree and go, yeah, it's because it's miles away. Yeah. Do, do, do you understand how comfortable yeah. that is? For like, so, and, and, and so I'm calling myself out here really to say I recognize how easy it is to go there and how e- like how easy it is if I wanted to in my mind to make you wrong when you're saying, because I even talked earlier, I said about distance, I grew up a bit, bit out of London, so I'm not connected to it, yeah? And then when you start talking, I'm like, fuck, that's what I did. So then naturally the protective voice in my head wants to go, no, 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 it is that, it is that. Let him say what he's saying, but fucking that's not you. But then when you're talking, I'm like, no, it is race. Because I know, I recognize, if you had two pictures up to me, I would adultify the black child quicker than I would the white one. Yeah? I wreck, that's my foot. I would have to, I have to retrain my mind to go, no, no, they're both the same. If you took two 10 year olds, yeah? I'd have to retrain my mind to do that. Now, have I been taught that? Oh, this is a genuine question. Yeah. Is, have I been taught that within the societies and the structures? I must have been taught that because- You weren't born with it. I weren't born with it. So somewhere along the line, I have myself, I'm indoctrinated into, into seeing, and I saw it when I was a kid. I used to play with a lad, I won't say his name. When we used to play football, I used to play with a lad. Uh, he was the only black lad in our team and he was fucking good. And he was known for being hard, right? When we were like 12, 13. And I clear as day remember a game, he got racially abused by one of the parents on the sideline, yeah? And I remember seeing him teared up, right, on the pitch. He didn't let himself cry, but I remember seeing him being teared up on the pitch. And even at that age, perhaps, I was a bit surprised that he would get teared up. Because in my mind, even though he was the same age as us, when I, I, I guess even when I'm saying it, he was known as being honest fuck. I saw him as being much older and more like an adult than me. Yeah, well, and that's massive. I mean, what we're touching on adult vocation, definitely um, when you see black children, it's a, it's a massive thing. We saw that with the child Q situation um, <clears throat> and that whole process of how, yeah, she was strip searched and at 15 years old, which, which, is, which is outrageous. I think what I want to come back to, though, it is a race thing, but it's, it's also a class thing as well. And because if you notice, we never talk about black middle class or black working class. It's just black. Mm. And that 
but we talk about white working class and white middle class, right? We don't talk about like Asian working class or Asian middle class, but we know there's a, there, it exists. 100%. Right? So this is what I'm trying to say. The narrative needs to be unpacked a lot more and we need to start feeding the masses the truth because I know black middle class people who are not from the ends, who are on six figures, who live in lovely homes and they can't connect to what I'm doing. They're still my mates, but they, they can't connect, mm. right? And I've got working class black friends who came from the area who do understand. And then there are people like myself and some of my friends who started off with working class and, and somehow assimilated into middle class and whatever that whatever you want to attach to that, whether it's the type mm. of coffee you're having or the fact that you can afford a house, I don't know what it is, right? Or yeah. education, but then there's that assimilation. And these things we don't want to unpack and the different levels of trauma each of those things hold. Because mm. as a black man, it's like, well, gosh, <clears throat> you don't want to be too middle class because you've sold out. But you don't want to be too working class when you're in spaces where you're dealing with politicians and stuff because you want to be taken seriously. And one of the things when I'm, I'm doing my PhD at Durham, I have massive anxiety about, mm, I don't know, you know. I don't know if it's where I need to be. I don't know if it's where I should be. I've always battled against this type of tradition. But what was interesting, it was only when I had a, a black female su uh, supervisor who'd gone through there and she was like, now you can do this and I'm gonna walk with you. I suddenly felt comfortable. But the point is, if you don't look at um, demographics in a class context, you will just have a monolithic approach to what life is. And we can have these conversations here, but I always use this example. I never forget when I was up in Snowden, we went to Snowden with family and it was amazing and we climbed the mountains and we stayed at the farm. My kids are loving it. Like, it's amazing. We, like, I'm the only black person in the, on the <laughs> near the mountain, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, right? And I'm calm with that. It was just a lovely time. I turn on the TV and Newsnight comes on. Mm. And my friend Governor B is on Newsnight and he's talking about drill music and he's talking about knife crime and all this stuff. And the imagery is mad, right? You're talking, you see machetes and you're seeing drill eyes and you're seeing all this type of stuff. And you talk about context. I'm in Snowden, North Wales, and I said to my wife, I was like, whoa, if I was a white person sitting on the, in this farm and I'm seeing that, I would think London and black people are mad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because that's what I'm seeing. I don't see this around me, but I'm seeing on news, I'm seeing this black guy talking about drill and knife crime, and it's crazy. And it was, it spoke to me, I was like, wow. Now here's the other thing though. What people, you, you, you've said it a couple of times, you're from Swindon, it's a different context, right? My argument would be, I don't think it is that different. Mm. Because if we start talking about county lines, if we start talking, this is what I would say, I go to Cambridge, I go to these places, I go to Cardiff, I'm just like, yeah, it might not be black kids, but where there's drugs, there's gangs. Yeah. Where there's gangs, there's violence. And where there's violence and gangs and drugs, there's poverty. And that is a mix, which mm. causes where we're at at the moment. And I think people are seeing that now. When I go to Shrewsbury to see my mother-in-law and she tells me some of the stuff, or the kids from Liverpool coming into Shrewsbury because it's a university town, you know, and, and the 
doing the selling drugs and stuff. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. You got London kids going to all these places as well. I just think it's a more than anything else, it's a youth culture conversation. And, and, I'll, get, and I'll, I'll tell you this for for nothing. You know, we're kind of a similar age. But when I was in South East London, back in the 90s, listening to 90s hip hop and like East Coast, I was never gonna meet Biggie Smalls. Hmm. Never. I was never gonna meet Mob Deep. I was never gonna meet Nas. I was never gonna meet any of these people. I was pumping the music hard in my bedroom in South East London. The difference between then and now is that the stars are from the estates. You got Dave and Central C with the biggest track of the summer moving mad units and it's number one. Mm. Kids are looking at like, that's Dave's from Streatham. Yeah. I went to school with that guy. I can do this. And Dave's not the first, obviously we can go back, Stormzy and others, but right about now, it is so easy to see that and think that's achievable, where it wasn't the case for me back in the day. Why am I saying it? I think it's leveled the playing field. Mm. This, this mix of culture, music, um, drugs, this, this idea that you can't work for anybody. No, no, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be self-made. You know what I mean? I'm not gonna work for no one. I've got 21 years talking, I'm not working for them. Like, what are you talking about? Mm. Fine, I'm not saying not to try and do, but it's okay to work for someone. Mm. It's okay, but we don't hear that. It's mad. It's now we've 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 overtaken British music. It's overtaking American music for the first time in the charts. No American artists are charting. Mm. It's UK artists. You've got to look at the combination of why they're charting, what they're saying, what they're promoting. A young person is looking at these guys and like, yeah, no, I want the car, I want the watch, I want the girl, I want the house. Want I, it now? I want it now. I'm not. I'm not talking ten years. I want it now. Okay, how do we do that then? It's it's crazy. So we've got to look at the culture. We look at history. We've got to look at what's going on. It's yeah. it's it's a real interesting mix. And then the, the other thing is technology. How fast it moves. When I used to run a record label, it was very simple in 2004. Oh, well, let me pay for studio time. Let me pay for the video. Let me pay for mastering. Let me pay for the vinyls to be pressed. Right. So I'm down about three grand already. Mm. Nowadays, it's like, well, now I'm in my room, I mean, knock up a beat, and I'm like, I use Pro Tools, da 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 da, and I can make, my bedroom does filming, so he can he can do that, and then we put it out on YouTube, YouTube. and then within a month, it's on TikTok, you got a hit, and it's charting. Mm. Now, there's a quality control conversation in that, but it's easy, it's easy, and I know, unfortunately, young people who were drill artists, or not even drill, UK art, UK rap artists, who lost their lives, why? Because they've got millions of hits, but they haven't got Jay-Z and Beyonce security. Yeah. They still yeah. got to go Morley's Chicken. Yeah. They still got to navigate yeah. the ends, yeah. but they've got millions of hits. Yeah. And no one around them, and this is why I'm advocating for more emotional and mental health and therapeutic support for these artists. Don't just give them a 300K contract and then get upset. I either spent 300K on the chain, and then that chain got robbed. <laughs> Well, you gave him three hundred k, and you've not given him anything else. Well, mm. and, and actually, this this we've been talking about uh, the similarity with kind of the football academy mm. philosophy. For every one player, for every one Trent uh, or you know Alexander Arnold, or for every one I don't know Mason Mount, 
um, there's going to be hundreds, if not thousands, who don't thousands, make it. Thousands, yeah. Thousands, right? Mm. And what happens to them, right? They're, they're, they're living in the possibility. They're spending the money even before they've earned it, right? And then they're dropped. And they're dropped just like that. So if we think about what's going on, if we talk, think about the analogy of that, of the metaphor of that that's going on, you've got one artist that might make it and you've got thousands that don't. What happens to that possibility and that hope and that opportunism mm. is still going to be need to be realized. It's just going to be realized in a different way. And the thing I would say about what you're saying about Swindon versus London, I think, yeah, it's happening in every city and it's happening in predominantly white cities and it's happening in, in um, more ethnically mixed cities. What you don't have is the media that have a vested, I know we go on about, we, we do beat on the media here, but you know, they have a vested interest. Saying that this happens everywhere doesn't sell papers. Saying that, you know, showing a kid with a machete mm. or the kid that walked into someone's house, what was his name? I can't remember his, his name. Oh, um, yeah. Mizzy, Mizzy, yeah. yeah. That, that he would like that blew up and i understand it was it was it was it was a horrible thing to do but that sold you know for him to go on and talk to piers morgan and for piers morgan to be able to just you know tear him apart and make fun of him they that just did you see that thing he wrote though did you see his monologue he did yeah have you seen that yeah yeah i thought that was quite well, good the thing about me is that but again I, i'm not I, I don't want to always be back to race but the thing is how many influencers and pranksters have we seen who are white? Yeah, have done madnesses like that, yeah. and they've now got big shows. Yeah. That made me clear. I, I think he's an idiot. Yeah, and I don't think it. It. I, I would be encouraging him to go into random people's houses and doing yeah. all types of man. I, I. I don't condone any of that. But I do look at it and think, well, if that was somebody else, he would have got a million, ten million, five million pound deal right about now. Mm. Right. But he doesn't fit the narrative. He he, he fits the narrative of a menace, <laughs> and and this underclass which we're trying to we're trying to we we don't want. And I'm like, okay, but I guarantee if it was a blonde head guy, in fact I've seen them. I've seen these people on on YouTube, mm. and I'm like, you're not doing that much difference to Mizzy, mm. and you're being well respected. So it's I don't want to be like it's, everything's about race. I don't think it is all about race, but there are certain things which we're dealing with when you see that narrative shift. And you see it show up, yeah. And to, to, I, I think it's probably even more sinister than what you're saying about it doesn't sell papers or whatever you said. It doesn't like yeah. yeah but when you make it about everywhere, that isn't that doesn't sell as many stories. I think it's more sinister than that. I think if you make it about everywhere like it fucking is, you're pinpoint, you are then pointing the finger at one person, whoever's in charge of fucking all of them, oh, yeah. which is the government, the government, do something about it because something you're doing is wrong. When you hone in and make it about one race or you make it about one area, yeah, then everyone can point and they can blame the race or they can blame the area. Yeah, and then, and then, and then the government are not culpable. When like exactly what you've just said, the government are fucking over the, particularly the last 13 years, have completely ripped away everything to do with children's services, yeah? And that's one of the, like, that's a big driver of the issue that we're seeing here. And if you go, this is about fucking, like all of the things you talked about at the beginning, this is about trauma. This is about not supporting children adequately, no matter what race they are or where they live, right? Th this is about all of that stuff, yeah? If you go with the truth, which is this is fucking happening everywhere, and there's a lot of kids, like you gave the example where most of them are white in another area, it's fucking happening everywhere and it's a blanket. As soon as you do that, people might start going, well, you're fucking in charge of everyone. You need to do something about it. And what happens is we end up fighting one another 
and put like what or not fighting one another what happens is is the middle class people end up then all pointing the finger and going you need to fucking sort yourselves out yeah because it's your problem it's an issue within your communities but i think it's i think you're right but again i think the problem is we don't know how to handle multiple and contradicting narratives we yeah. have to be able to say yes the government have a responsibility but there's also a reality that there is some things within um, our communities we also need to address as well, and also know how to, we can empower our communities as well. Mm. There has to be work on the ground. There has to be a way that you can get the experiences of, of the communities being most impacted by this into a space where that can actually influence policy. Yeah. And, the, and the problem is it, you don't necessarily have the translators or the people in the middle who can say, you know, walk with me. I've taken you know, parents who've lost young people to, to, to parliament before. I've moved them into spaces where they've had conversations with Sadiq Khan and all this type of stuff. But, and that influences people. Because I think where you, your point about heart change it is fascinating when you do that and you actually have families talking to these politicians where there's no press around, there's no mm. shouting over people. And they're just hearing the real, real story, you do see a heart change actually. And I've seen politicians then go into parliament the next day. So I met with Power to Fire and the family, and actually, we really do need to do some work in this particular area. Mm. Those one to one conversations. But if you don't have the person in the middle, or like us, who can bring and coach the families well, so don't be worried, don't be scared, they're working for us, you're paying a salary kind of thing. It's really, it's really um, intricate in how we do it. Uh, and sorry, just to say one more thing, you know, the, um, you know, what you're pointing to is, is where all these kind of forces are working together, right? So it's the bait and switch, right? In keeping people focused on a very small um, kind of, um, I guess, I won't say it's a small issue, but it's a, it, 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 trying to point it as an issue to take people's attention away, it, it stops them, so it's kind of reinforcing what you're saying, it stops them going, oh, actually, we've lost our youth clubs, uh, our kids have nowhere to go, I've got no money, like my pound doesn't go as, as far as it used to, uh, life's much harder, I can't pay my bills, like all of the uh, utility companies are making all the money at the same time. You, you don't think about that stuff because you're watching the news every day and go, oh, oh, look it up, look it up. You know, in Wales, they're going, look it up. Uh, black on black crime over there in London. Oh, we're lucky, we, we're, we're fine here. Our government's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're, you're, you're like, you're, I'm just kind of saying, yeah, I'm sort of hearing you both. And that, that, but I think that's done very purposely from the top. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. not accidental. That is, that's driven very, very purposely. Of course. Um, by the media, the right-wing media and stuff like that. But it's echo chambers, right? Yeah. I tell you when I realised it, it was Brexit. If I just focused on my timeline and my friends, I was like, oh, we're gonna we're, remain. We're fine. We all did. We're, we're gonna remain. We all did. It'd be fine. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and then when I saw it, I was like, oh, Ben, you idiot. Like, there's a bigger place than just London. Yeah. There's a bigger place than just your timeline. This is what the rest of the country really think yeah and um that was that was the moment where i was I, I had the revelation like probably a lot of people did like uk we don't all think the same yeah we don't and you kind of know it right but, yeah but yeah. most people's echo chamber as well is the mainstream media yeah now if you've built up a bit of a like 
online community like you will have done because of the work that you do, your echo chamber is, is likely that. Yeah. 90% probably more than that, people's echo chamber is the mainstream media. Yeah, it's true. And I see a picture earlier of, they just did a Brexit special on uh, the Question Time. Have you seen a picture of the audience mm -hmm. that floated about on Twitter? I mean, I, you'd look at this picture of the audience and they were fucking all Brexiteers mm. <laughs> just looking at them, yeah? Making the judgment, yeah? And so I, I think because we have our own echo chambers, we forget just how powerful the mainstream media are. And by the way, I'll take that even a step further now. I think they even know that they can write an article that seems pretty balanced, but as long as the fucking headline is really polarizing, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's fucking high of people that only read headlines now. Yeah. They ain't got the attention span to sit and read the whole article anyway. Yeah. So if the article is like, if the, if the headline is like really polarizing and then the journalist goes, yeah, but read the article. That's obviously, I'm just trying to get people to read the article, right? That's what we do. No, because most people only read the headlines. And it's fucking so easy, so easy to forget that, that that is the echo chamber that most people are being fed. And that's how they get indoctrined into, into the belief systems that they have. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then you go into all the school stuff and all of that, you know, like what we were taught in schools. And I know that, that, that they're changing that, right? But it's still, you still get indoctrined from very young about, you know, I was taught as a kid very much to very, strongly over identify with the fact that I'm British. Do you know what I mean? So even that was inducted in me in a fucking young age. Yeah. That, and which was essentially the subliminal message that you're fucking British, so you are just by default better than everybody else, right? And then we were taught that throughout our lessons and all that kind of stuff, yeah? So the influence I think of people that like, that it has on people is massive. Uh, and, and just quickly before, we, before you go, then that influence, it then becomes very easy to ignore outside influences and follow that comfortable narrative that keeps me feeling like I'm in a big body of people rather than rocking the boat yeah. and putting the hand up and saying, fucking something ain't right here. And I, I think the final point to say on this is most people aren't even conscious to it. Yeah. It's like they're sedated. Like they're just sedated by the mainstream media and the narrative and the headlines and they're just like walking in a in a buzz the whole time and it's just it's like you know what is it what's that um antidepressant prozac or whatever just keeps you on a level yeah yeah much, yeah it? it's only when you start to kind of emerge out of the fog and you start going shit what's going on here yeah but most people are just in that. And I think that's most people, isn't it? Yeah, most people. Most people, if I look at who I knocked about with until my life sort of changed when I got sober, most of them would have been in that category that you're just talking about. Completely a bit, like this would feel like a completely alternate, alternative conversation yeah. to them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like a bit, they would almost see us as fucking conspiracy theorists talking yeah. about this. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? As a, as like it would be so far removed from their belief system, yeah. they would think you're fucking creating a narrative yeah. that don't even exist. Yeah. Mate, I may as well have not bought that iPad because we didn't follow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it just means you'll we'll have to get Ben on again, <laughs> innit? You know. yeah, we'll have to come back and do a, a part two. Look, I've really enjoyed it. And look, I think what, uh, what we like to try and do is create uncomfortable conversations. Uh, and I think we probably did that today for some people that might have been listening. Any closing thoughts, Ben, first? Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. And I respect both of you. Um, 
getting to know you, Josh, and obviously I've known you for a while. I think it's really important to have these spaces. Yeah. And, um, I know there's a few topics we didn't get onto, but I think particularly as men, it's really important that mm. we can have these honest conversations. It's something which I'm trying to encourage a lot more with, with my male friends, um, having uncomfortable conversations, um, having those real ones, those deep ones, you know, not those superficial ones. So the fact that you're creating these spaces is fantastic. I think I would just encourage people really to go behind the headlines, mm. um, to have more empathy, not to always put yourself in the story. Mm. I think it's easy for us to be like, well, how does that relate to me as opposed to just looking at this as a justice issue. Um, people often say to me, well, oh, Ben, you must have got into this because you know you were involved in a gang or you were, um, you used to carry a knife or you used to, and I was like, no, I, that was not my experience. I grew up in South East London, a lot of this stuff was around me, but for multiple reasons, I did not get involved in this. The reason why I do this is because when I became a Christian, I realized that it wasn't enough for me just to look at this incredible gift of Jesus and think, that's for me. I had, my thought process was, well, what does that mean for the rest of the community? Mm. If I'm seeing this love, if I'm seeing this support, if I'm seeing this incredible, wonderful um, gift of who he is, what does that mean for everybody else? And therefore, sometimes I think we think, and I think this is a true, I think sometimes we think the best people to deal with the situation are the ones with the lived experience. And I think in some cases that is true. But I also think the people who have not been impacted directly by the trauma, if they've got enough empathy and they're prepared to be humble and learn, can also play a major part. And that would be my experience. I can walk into spaces with not the trauma of having um, a loved one stabbed to death, um, mm. going through court systems. I can look at it from a very objective kind of view and I can be very like, okay, pragmatic about stuff, but also my pastoral heart is about being empathetic. Mm. And my encouragement to people is don't discount yourself from getting involved in, in these justice issues just because you've not had a direct um, engagement with it. Anything to add, Hass, before we close this down? Uh, I think we should leave it on those incredible words. Uh, really enjoyed this, and uh, we'll see you all again very soon. Thanks again for listening to 115 Miles with Josh Connolly and Hassan Kyle.